you guys have your Bibles, why don't you take them out and open to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be in verses 32 to 45. And just to catch some of you guys up, uh, over this summer we've been going through uh, just a series in the Gospels. We've been picking different passages from the Gospels. And the goal has been to know and to see the person of Christ better. Right? What is he like? Uh, what does he care about? What's on his heart? Uh, what does he teach us? And so that's what we've been doing. We've been just looking at different, different accounts, uh, different interactions with people in the Gospels, and just learning more about Jesus. And we know that that's how we grow, right, as Christians. And we behold Christ, and we become more like him. And so we're going to continue to, to do that tonight. Uh, we are in Mark 10, 32 to 45. And so let me read it for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in. Okay, so Mark, 30, Mark 10, starting in verse 32. And I'll read to, read to verse 45. It says, and they, were, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask to do. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, do you know that those who are considered Rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for money. That's right. God, as we open your word now, uh, we come and we are uh, bombarded with the world's vision of greatness, what it means to be great in the eyes of our peers, uh, in the eyes of this society. And we know that that is so different than what you have taught us in your word. And so give us, Lord, that desire to be great, uh, to be servants, uh, to walk in the way of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, who did not come to be served, but to serve. And so teach us that, through the preaching of your word right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by asking you guys a question. And uh, it's a few different questions, but it's the same idea. When you think about your life, when you think about your future, what is that one thing that you want to accomplish? What is the one thing that you want to achieve? Um, you can call it your greatest ambition. What is that for you? When you think about your life, what do you want to be known for? I'm guessing those probably aren't like brand new questions to you guys. Maybe you've thought about it before. 
Maybe you visit and revisit those questions often. Maybe you've even changed your answers for those questions over time. I know for you guys as college students, especially for some of you about to start college, you are uh, in this season of life where you're making decisions that affect the trajectory of where you hope to be headed. Right? You're making decisions that are, that are big, right? that will impact where you are for the next few years or even for the rest of your life. You're making decisions that you hope will help advance you towards where you hope to be, that desired destination. Now think about it, why and how did you choose your major? Why and how did you choose the career that you hope to pursue? Was it the prominence? Was it the work-life balance? Uh, the salary, the comfort? Was it the respect that it'll earn you? Maybe you're just trying to meet other people's expectations and so you're pursuing a certain career. Uh, maybe for others of you, it's not career-oriented. Right? When you think about those questions I asked you earlier, you don't think immediately of a career, you think about something else. You're not so much concerned about achieving or like formal titles or accolades. For you, you just care about being well-liked. You wanna have good relationships, you wanna have a lot of friends. You concentrate your effort into how other people see you, the kind of reputation you have. What does it mean to be great? And that's the question I want you guys to think about. What does it mean to be great? What ambition or what pursuit is really worth giving our lives to? And when we look at our passage, that's the question that it answers for us. And as we dive in, the truth of this passage is something I think we really need to hear often. I, mean, I know it is for me, the world's definition and the picture of greatness is so different. It's even uh, completely opposite sometimes of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And yet we can know that, right? We can grow up in church and know that. And yet it's so easy to buy into the way of the world. Like what greatness and success looks like in the eyes of the world. And our hearts are so self-absorbed that we desperately will grasp at greatness in even the most subtle ways, right? If it's not something super ambitious like a career, maybe we'll grasp for greatness at church or just amongst our, our small group of friends. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're just going to walk through this passage, and there's so much in here. Um, but let me give you the key idea for our passage for tonight. It's true greatness, according to Jesus, is about self-sacrificial service. True greatness, according to Jesus, is about self-sacrificial service. And we'll look at this in three parts. Okay, first part we'll call the way to Jerusalem and suffering. And this is kind of the, the context or the background for uh, really the rest of our passage. So look at verse 32 again. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will arise. So throughout our series, uh, we've been in Mark's gospel, actually, just coincidentally a few times. Um, and so maybe you remember some of the, the things that we've said about just the big picture of the book. And this is important. Okay, so maybe you remember that we talked about how Mark is split up into two halves, right? Uh, chapter 1 to 8, first half, it focuses on Jesus' power, his authority. We see him healing uh, you know, people, casting out demons. It proves that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. That's the first half, chapter 1 to 8. Second half, chapter 9 to, 9 to 16, it focuses on Jesus' suffering, his journey to the cross. And the turning point comes in chapter 8, right in the middle, 
Uh, it's actually March 27, 38 to, uh, 27 to 30. Sorry, March 8, 27 to 30. You guys can turn there, actually. Just flip back a few pages. Mark 8, 27 to 30. And it's where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Other people have said that Jesus is John the Baptist, that he's Elijah, that he's one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? And Peter correctly answers, you are the Christ. Right? It's the high point, uh, or one of the high points of Peter's life. Right? He's put his foot in his mouth a lot of times, but he gets it right here. He says, you are the Christ. Well, right after that, that high point, a turning point, things go south real fast. If you look in verse 31 of uh, chapter 8, it says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So there's that turn, right? Jesus as the Son of God to Jesus as having to suffer. And how does Peter respond? It says in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Like he actually tries to rebuke Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I don't think you got this right. The reverse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. It's a pretty well-known exchange there, but... Peter, or Jesus calls Peter Satan, and he says, you don't know what you're saying, right? All right, turn one page over, Mark 9, 31. This might sound familiar. It says, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Okay, so there's a second prediction of what's going to happen to him. What happens next? First time, Peter tried to rebuke Jesus. What about this time? Verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? These are his disciples. They said, but they kept silence, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Okay, did you catch that? Sometimes, I know in the Gospels, there's different events that are similar and so we kind of conflate them into one single event, right? I think sometimes we do this with uh, Jesus' healing, healing different people. Like he heals multiple blind people, and so we think it's just one event. But this is one of those instances, right? They just argued about who was the greatest. And this is a separate occasion from what's happening in our passage. I mean, they were literally just arguing about this. And so by the time we get to our passage, chapter 10, Verse 32 to 34, this is the third time that Jesus predicts his impending suffering. And from chapters 8 to 10, the pattern is the same. You can look at it when you have time on your own. First, Jesus predicts that he's going to suffer. Then you get this foolish response from the disciples. And then you get this lesson from Jesus on discipleship. Now, one thing I want to point out about our passage, these verses, uh, verses 32 to 34, is that each time Jesus makes this prediction about his suffering, it gets more and more detailed as we move forward in Mark. And so if you read in chapter 8, chapter 9, and then chapter 10, not only will the Son of Man suffer, not only will he be rejected and killed by the religious elite, you read that in chapters 8 and 9, but here it says he's going to be mocked and spit on and flogged. And when you look at that, that is like extremely precise, extremely graphic detail. 
And I think for us, we, we read that and we kind of miss out on just how amazingly accurate this, this, this prediction is. Because for us, we already know the end of the story, right? We already know what's gonna happen to Jesus. But when you read this, the cross hasn't happened yet. This is exactly what's gonna happen to him. Now I point that out because I think the fact that Jesus knows this much about all that's going to happen to him, the fact that that's true actually compounds his suffering, actually increases his suffering. I mean, for you guys, if you ever go to the doctor and you get a shot, like a lot of us don't like to look, right? Because we're like, if I know less, it'll hurt less, right? And I don't want to look at it because it'll hurt more. I mean, that's just a small example of what I'm trying to get at here. Knowing everything that's going to happen to him actually compounds his suffering. This was the weight and the sorrow and the burden that he bore, even from eternity past. Jesus knows exactly what is awaiting him. And yet, if you look at the picture here in verse 32, what does it look like? Well, Jesus is leading the way. It says he's walking ahead of them towards Jerusalem. You have his followers kind of straggling behind. And I think that's why Mark says here that Jesus' followers were amazed and afraid. They're amazed and afraid because if what Jesus says is true, then how can he be so resolute? How can he be so courageous in marching forward? Right? That's why they're amazed. But if, but if what Jesus says is true, then what does it mean for us as his followers? That's why they're afraid. And so this is the backdrop for what's going on. And it sets up this request from two of Jesus' disciples. And this leads to our second point. We'll call it the way of the world and glory. The way of the world and glory. Look at verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him. You can stop right there. Who are James and John? Well, James and John were brothers. Um, in our passage, it calls them the sons of Zebedee. And if you read elsewhere in, uh, in the Gospels, maybe the most telling thing you learn about them is Jesus himself actually gave them a nickname. He calls them the sons of thunder. Sons of Thunder, right? That sounds kind of like a, like their fake wrestling name, uh, but it describes their personalities. That's why they were called the Sons of Thunder. There's an account in Luke 9, 51 to 56, maybe you guys remember this, where there is a Samaritan village, and they, uh, they reject Jesus' message. Basically, they want to send messengers to preach the gospel to them, and they reject Jesus' messengers. And James and John, they see that. And they go to Jesus and they're trying to be like helpful here. And they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? Do you want us to now call judgment down on this town that has rejected you? And so that's just a glimpse of their personality. Right? They were strong. They're passionate. They're brash. They're in your face, uh, short tempered. That's James and John. And so they come to Jesus with this request. And if you look at how they put it, it's an interesting way to put it up or to bring it up. It says, uh, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, why did they put it that way? Well, if you kind of think back to chapter 9, um, 934, actually, we already saw that this earlier argument about who was the greatest, that disciples were already kind of sheepish. They were kind of embarrassed that they were even arguing about this. And when Jesus asked them, hey, what were you talking about? It says that they actually kept silent. Um, and so this might be another way of just James and John trying to ask nicely, right? trying to kind of conceal their embarrassment. And maybe this has happened to you before. Right? You've had a friend ask something like this to you, and they say, hey, uh, can you do a favor for me? Right? And what's the next question? Of course, you say, 
uh, sure, but what is it, right? What is it that you want to ask me to do? Because that's going to make a difference, right? But James and John, they're like, hey, um, Jesus, we want to ask you a favor, but we're not going to tell you yet. Like, just say yes first, and then we'll tell you what we want us to do. We want you to do. Like, they want a blank check from Jesus, and it's, it's pretty bold of them. And yet Jesus is so patient, so gracious. Look at his response in verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, I think we understand what they're asking, right? Uh, they, they, they want the best seat of honor, right? They want uh, prestige. They want uh, to be great, right? But I think something we also have to recognize is they're being like totally serious. They're, they're like literally, they're thinking about, they want to sit on thrones in glory at the right and left of Jesus. I want us to recognize that because remember throughout the gospels, there is this messianic expectation uh, that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you think back to what Seichi preached on, on this uh, idea of kingdom, right? The Old Testament talked about this Messiah. It talked about a real king, a literal kingdom. And so when you look at verse 31, uh, there's actually this significance to the title Son of Man. Okay, I know we kind of just read through that. That's just another name for Jesus. But in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, it's a pretty important Old Testament passage. It talks about this Son of Man. And it says that the Son of Man will be given dominion and glory and kingdom. And it says that all peoples, nations, languages will bow down to the Son of Man and serve him. So this is like literal thrones, literal like seats at the right and left of Jesus. But what's the problem with their request? I mean, they, they totally did not listen to everything else that Jesus said. Right? Maybe they heard that phrase, son of man, and all they can think of is, oh, I'm gonna, I want to roll with Jesus. They had selective hearing. Uh, it's like the teacher in Charlie Brown, just like noises, like wah, 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 wah. And they heard son of man and everything else, which wah, 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 wah. And as they're heading towards Jerusalem, the Jerusalem is the royal city, right? Like that's even more kingdom imagery. That's the, the city of the kings. And so James and John are stoked. In fact, in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus had actually already promised his disciples, his 12 closest friends, 12 thrones with him in the kingdom. And yeah, we see here that's still not enough. For James and John, that's still not enough. It wasn't enough that they were already part of the 12. They wanted to be the top two. As you may know, James and John, um, along with Peter, these three disciples made up Jesus's inner circle. Right? And actually what's interesting is that these verses are the only instance in Mark that the two of them, James and John, show up together without Peter. And I think a reason for that is Peter's already made a fool of himself in chapter 8. And so James and John are like, this is our time, right? This is our time to strike Peter, just like lost some points, right? This is our time to overtake him. C.S. Lewis, he once wrote about this thing that he called the inner ring, the inner ring. And, and he's talking about how all of us are constantly jockeying for acceptance into this inner ring. This inner ring is a group where we want to get into, where we want to belong, so that we can feel good about ourselves. Maybe you can think of those people in your life and what that looks like for you. But Lewis says that once you get there, once you break into this inner ring, you don't find belonging, you don't find glory, you find another ring. 
And it's like layers of an onion, onion that you keep peeling back and peeling back until when you get to the middle, there's nothing left. Maybe you've experienced that before. And so yeah, James and John's request is bold. It's totally inappropriate. But when it comes to that desire for greatness, right, that desire for recognition, for being on the inside, right, we can relate to that, right? Like we realize that they are more like us than unlike us. And here's another thing. Don't forget that James and John, they gave up everything to follow Jesus, that their devotion and their love for Jesus was real. I mean, I think that just shows us that, that this happens to the best of us, right? The pursuit for self-glory and status and recognition, it is so subtle, and yet it can be so easily mingled into even our serving, even when we do a church, um, even our discipleship. Maybe you can relate to that. Like You feel that temptation. You feel that desire constantly in the back of your mind. Uh, maybe especially for some those of you who are in positions of leadership. I know some of you are really involved in your campus ministries. Like maybe you feel that, that just that desire for recognition, for greatness, for status. How does Jesus respond? Verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. And he's so, so gracious, right? so patient. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, Jesus uses two different metaphors. You can probably see them for yourself to describe the suffering that he's about to endure. Right? First, he says the cup, and in different parts of scripture, the cup refers to God's wrath. Um, you can look in Isaiah 51 for an example of that. And then the second one is baptism. And that's not as uh, a common metaphor, but it's this picture of being plunged or submerged with suffering. So you're not just being like sprinkled, or it's not just like a little bit of suffering, but you're completely submerged into suffering. That's, that's what Jesus is about to endure. And so what he's trying to communicate to them is that the path to glory goes through suffering. Yeah, the path to glory goes through suffering. And specifically for Jesus, that meant the cross. Right? That meant Jerusalem, where they were headed. And that was what the disciples failed to understand. That's what all the confusion is about. That's what Peter didn't understand uh, in that right after his confession. But what did James and John say? And they are just so full of themselves, so confident in themselves. Verse 39. To Jesus' question, they say, we are able. And yeah, we can. And we can drink the cup you're about to drink. We can go through the baptism with which you are going to be baptized. And just, like, recognize the correct answer to Jesus' question is no. <laughs> They're not able to drink the cup that Jesus is about to drink. Only Jesus could drink the cup of God's wrath. Only Jesus could endure that kind of suffering. I mean, if you jump ahead to verse 45, that's the whole point of verse 45, that Jesus alone had to be the ransom for the sins of many, right? He had to do that. So the obvious answer is no, like you don't know what you're talking about, James and John, but look at what Jesus says in response. It's very interesting. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Why does he say that? Jesus says, okay, even though they could not drink the cup that Jesus drank, obviously they couldn't bear God's wrath, right? Only Jesus could do that. Jesus says they would endure a similar kind of suffering. And if you read the rest of the Bible and in church history, we know that to be true. James would actually be the first apostle to be martyred. You can read about that in Acts 12. John would be the last. Keep reading verse 40. But to sit at my right hand 
For at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, why does Jesus do this? Right, let's, think, let's think here. What's the point of asking that question in the first place? Like, even if James and John fulfilled the conditions, so to speak, Jesus says, okay, your, your request still can't be granted. Like, wouldn't it have made more sense if Jesus said either, no, you can't drink the cup, and so you can't have those heats of glory, or he should have said, you will drink the cup, and so you will have those heats of glory. Why does Jesus do it this way? I think he's trying to show them that it's not just their desire for status that's wrong, but their ambition is also misguided. Let me try to illustrate. In society, there are those who are great because they know the right people. They have the right connections. They have it handed to them on a silver platter. Um, they are rewarded for their loyalty to those in power. And actually, uh, USC has a reputation for this. <laughs> Go Bruins. <laughs> and I think, there, I mean, there's a, there's a bit of this here, right? Like, you just know the right people. And uh, I think that's, like, actually happening here in this passage. There was this thing called a patron-client system back then, right? You just know the right people, you're loyal to them, and they'll reward you. And so that's what James and John are doing here. They know that Jesus is influential. They're trying to secure the back. And for us, when we look at that kind of greatness, right, you're just great because you know the right people, we kind of look down on that, right? They didn't earn it. They didn't work for that. They just know the right people. Well, here, James and John are willing to earn it. They're willing to risk their nets. They're willing to put their lives down that they can secure those seats of honor. They say, hey, Jesus, we will drink the cup. We will go through the baptism. We will do anything for those seats of honor. Now, I think some of you are like that. Right? Some of you are like that, especially in college. You will do anything. And you will put in whatever work it takes. You will study as hard as you can. You will pull all-nighters. You'll get apply for a dozen internships, you will do anything in order to get that A, to get into grad school, to land that prestigious or comfortable job. Or if it's not career-oriented, you will spread yourself so thin with making friends, you'll hang out, uh, you, will, you will serve in multiple capacities so that you can be great, right? so that you can earn it, so that you can be recognized and praised and well-liked. And for us, when we look at this kind of greatness, we're like, okay, this is more acceptable. This is more justifiable because I put in the work, right? I did something for it. What does Jesus say? He says, it's not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. So he says here, glory is not earned. Glory is given by God. It doesn't matter what you do if you're going into it just thinking about what you're going to get in the end. Because if you just do that, even faithful discipleship, even giving up your life for Jesus can, be just, can become just a means for your own selfishness. Now, to be clear, the Bible does talk about glory. It does talk about rewards that are coming for us as believers in the end. But at least here in this passage, Jesus says it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And he doesn't give us more detail about who those people are, but I think that's intentional. What we do know is it's the people who would least expect. And if you go back to chapter 9, he just talked about how you have to be last of all, how you have to be like a child. And it's, it's those people who aren't in the spotlight, the people who are forgotten, who, who you don't know their names. In fact, the only other place that this phrase 
on his right and on his left. The only other time that shows up again in the Gospel of Mark is chapter 15, Mark 15, 27. It's actually talking about the robbers on each side of Jesus he's on the cross. It's the people you would least expect. Well, by this time, the other disciples, they get involved, and it says in verse 41, uh, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And so the other disciples, they kind of catch the eavesdrop a little bit. They uh, get their attention, and they get angry. Now, why are they angry? Well, maybe it's the insensitivity of the request. Or I think more likely, based on what they were just arguing about in chapter 9, because James and John beat them to it. Right? They wish they asked Jesus that first. And so Jesus gathers all of his disciples together, and he gives them another teaching moment on discipleship. And he starts by describing what greatness looks like and how it works according to the world. And that brings us to our last point, the way of Jesus and self-sacrificial service. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And so he says the way that the world works uh, is that those who are in power, they exercise their authority in a way that makes their authority known. You work your way to the top so that you can boss people around. And just think about the difference between like a CEO or a manager versus uh, like an assistant, right, or entry-level job. The higher you go, the less dirty work, the less menial tasks you do, and the more authority you have. The more right you have to manage other people to tell them what to do. And it's not that authority or status or even having these positions are bad. But what Jesus is trying to say here is that the way that the world system tends to work is that power is easily abused. Power is often self-serving. You use your status and position and privileges to prop yourself up and to push others down. That's what what that phrase lorded over them is talking about. Not only are you over them, but you make it known that you are over them. That's the way the world works. Verse 43, it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so Jesus says, this is the way I want you to live as my disciples. If you want to be great, then you must be a servant. And that Greek word there for servant is diakonos, um, it describes a waiter. It's one who serves food and drink. Um, if diakonos sounds like deacon, because that's where we get the word deacon, um, a deacon is someone who meets the practical needs of the church, right? someone who serves. And maybe you hear that and you're thinking, well, that's not so bad. Right? Like, I don't mind being a deacon. Right? I don't mind serving. Uh, I do worship team. Like, I, I do rides. I even serve informally. Right? I have meetups with people, all the meetup, meetups throughout my week. Well, Jesus goes on, verse 44. Whoever would be first among you must be slave, and that word is doulos, right? Slave of all. So not just diakonos, but doulos, not just servant, but also slave. In, in case you misunderstand what it means to be a servant, it means that you also become like a slave. As someone once said, one of the best ways to find out about what you really think about service is what you do when someone treats you like a servant. Now, what does it mean to be a servant and slave of all? but it is to pursue self-sacrificial service rather than self-promotion. It is thinking more about how you can give rather than how you can receive. It's forgetting yourself so that you can love others well. It's not making demands, but it's being willing to wash other people's feet. 
It's seeking the good of others, even at cost to self. Now, what does that look like practically? Let me just give you a few ideas. In one, one way is it's being faithful and loving and laboring, even when it goes, goes unnoticed. Right? Being faithful in what God has called you to do, even when it goes unnoticed. I mean, our sinful hearts crave recognition, don't they? I mean, especially when someone else gets recognition and we don't, and we deserve it. We crave that. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 says. This is on your handouts. It says, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring, or who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. And that verse is scary, and yet it is hopeful. It says, be careful how you judge greatness, because it's going to be revealed over time. Right? What's true before the eyes of men is not always reality in the eyes of God. Now, do you ever think about the fact that true greatness or true glory in God's economy can remain completely unseen? Right? Like No one can even know your name, and you can be great in God's kingdom. Have you thought about that? And so keep being faithful, and God will recognize that in the end. That's what that verse says. What about in our friendships? What does it mean to be a servant and slave of all? Well, it means instead of jockeying for a position, instead of trying to get into the inner ring that we talked about, instead of just hanging out with those who benefit you, who make you feel good, it's reaching out to and welcoming those on the fringe. Right? Instead of thinking, okay, who can serve my preferences, my comfort, my reputation? Um, who can like, hold a conversation so I don't have to do the work? It's asking yourself, who can be a friend to who can I serve right now? Whose needs can I meet? Being a servant and slave of all means using your God-given advantages and opportunities to serve and bless others. Using your God-given advantages and opportunities to serve and bless others. I mean, think about James and John in our passage. I mean, like we said, they are in Jesus's inner circle. I mean, they're, they're like two of the three closest people to Jesus, right, within Jesus's 12 disciples. You can call that an advantage that they had on others. And yet, what did they do with that advantage? They tried to use it for their own benefit. They tried to get in. They tried to get the seats of honor. But what about you? God has made each of us differently. And he's made each of us with certain advantages, certain opportunities. Some of you are just like really good at what you do. Others of you have an abundance of resources. Others of you just have a personality that, that attracts people, right? Like you're good at bringing people together. When you think about that for yourself, take inventory of your life. What are the opportunities? What are the advantages that God has given you in your life? And then ask yourself, how can you use those, not for yourself, not to serve yourself, but to serve others? I mean, I think thinking through that helps us to answer some of the more practical questions like, okay, what should I major in or what kind of career should I choose? I want you to recognize here that Jesus doesn't ever rebuke their demand. Right? He, he redirects their desire. He doesn't ever say, hey, don't be great. Don't desire greatness. He says, concentrate that desire for greatness into humble service. If you want to be great, be a great servant. Right? If you want to be great, be great at loving other people, meeting their needs. And so when it comes to those questions, okay, what do I study? What major do I choose? I would say it's not so much what you choose as much as why and how you choose it. Right? What is it that governs that decision? Is it how you can gain for yourself or is it how you can give? Is it to be successful in the eyes of the world or is it to be useful for the kingdom of God? 
So college students, work hard, like excel at what you do, be at the top of your class, but instead of using that for your own benefit like the world does, Jesus says, use it as a means to serve others. Right? Use it as a tool in being a servant. What is our motivation? Verse 45. Verse 45 is the key verse in Mark's entire gospel. You've probably heard it before. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. And so if you're hearing all of, all of this and you're thinking about it, and, and being a servant and being a slave of all, if it ever seemed beneath you, and this verse tells us to consider Jesus Christ, I think Sachi mentioned this on Sunday during the call to worship, Jesus Christ never, ever needed for a moment, even for a second, that he never needed to serve anyone. He's the king of the universe. He's the creator. And yet it says here, he came not to be served, but to serve. So Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do, but he is our model, he is our example. We see that in verses 32 to 34. What Jesus tells us to do, he's going to do himself first. He doesn't call us to give up our own rights, our own privileges, without first giving up his own. He served, as Philippians 2.8 says, the point of death, even death on a cross. If you want to put it in the words of our passage, it says he served, even giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, I want to just focus on that word ransom uh, for a second here, because that word is interesting. Um, this is actually the only instance that Mark, in Mark's gospel, that he gives the reason why Jesus had to die. It's in this verse, to give his life as a ransom for many. And you probably know what that word means, right? Maybe you've seen uh, a movie with the hostage situation, maybe you've seen Taken, one, two, or three. And you know what a ransom is, right? A ransom was the price of release for a prisoner or for a slave. Now, let's ask slavery to what? Right? Why did Jesus have to pay a ransom? Well, we know from the rest of the Bible, slavery to sin. Right? Slavery to its legal consequences. But I think for the purpose of our passage tonight, we can also say slavery to our own self-centeredness. Right? Slavery to our own inward bent of our sinful hearts. I mean, sin has so corrupted our understanding of greatness. It, it constantly makes us think about ourselves. And greatness is no longer just about greatness to self, but it's about being known as great. Our greatness has become about being greater than someone else. Right? That's, that's the slavery to ourselves. We can't help but think about ourselves. And we, think, we talk about this all the time here at Lighthouse. When you're serving yourself, or when you're serving an idol other than God, when something else is ruling your life, you're not free, right? You're a slave. You're enslaved to that thing. That thing is running your life. If all you're after is glory and recognition and status, if everything, then everything else in your life will become about that thing. If you're serving greatness, if you're serving your reputation, your status, then you need other people to serve you. Right? You need other people to know who you are. You will use people rather than love them. I mean, that's slavery. Are you going to maintain your greatness? And yet here it says Jesus paid our ransom. He set us free. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, it says, The love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all have died. He died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. 
So we learn from this verse that you can joyfully take the place of servant and slave of all. Because Jesus paid our ransom. Because in the gospel, you have been freed. Or you have been free to love, to no longer live for yourself, but for Christ, for others, to love others freely. Like what John Piper said, he says, the measure of true greatness is to what degree has the impulse to self-exaltation been crucified? How much heartfelt desire to serve others has there been? How much readiness and willingness to, to decrease while others increase? Serving is the measure of greatness because it takes greater power to conquer selfishness than command service. So Beacon, what would your lives look like if you really pursued being great servants? And if you really pursued greatness by being a servant, like what if we all took to heart Romans 12, 10, to outdo one another in showing honor? Or what if we all approached the different areas of our lives, church, conversations, fellowship time, life in the apartments with your roommates, um, parents and family? What if we approached those uh, areas of our lives with the mentality, I'm here to serve and not to be served, right? I'm here to give and not to receive. What would your life look like? What would our fellowship look like? What would our church look like? bring this to a close. I want to look at verses 46 to 52. And if we had more time, we would unpack these verses a little bit more. But I just want to point out a few things because I think Mark intends for us to read this together with our passage. Look at verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And taking off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Does that question sound familiar? It's the same question. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I mean, it's such a contrast to our passage. James and John, they asked for glory. What does Bartimaeus ask for? That's for mercy. James and John, they ask for, they say, hey, let us sit at your right hand and at your left in glory. Bartimaeus says, Jesus, I just want to see. I just want to see you again. We said earlier that Mark tells us that about three times that Jesus predicts his passion suffering. Each time his disciples drop the ball. Each time they don't get it. Well, if you flip back to the very beginning of that, this is chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, you'll actually see that at the very beginning of that, it's Jesus healing a blind man. And here at the very end, it's Jesus healing another blind man. And I think that's on purpose. That's a metaphor for these disciples' spiritual blindness. They don't get it. And yet these blind men, they, they see. Right? They're blind, but they see. These disciples, they're, they're unable to understand Jesus and what it means to follow him. And so, Beacon, that's the question I want to leave you with tonight. Do you have eyes to see? Right? Do you have an accurate evaluation of yourself? Do you see your need for mercy? Do you see what Jesus has done for you? Do you see what it means to follow him 
Do you see what true greatness is all about? In our passage tonight, it helps us to see. It helps us to learn that true greatness, according to Jesus, is not about self-promotion. It's not about power or status or recognition. True greatness, according to Jesus, is marked by self-sacrificial service. Even the Son of Man did not come to to be served, but to serve. He gave his life as a ransom for man. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, you just get reminders like this in your word um, that really rebuke us of our pride, that really rebuke us of our desire for for status, for recognition, for glory um, in the eyes of the world. And we need to be reminded that, that greatness, according to you, is being a servant. It's not even about ourselves. It's, it's meeting the needs of others. It's becoming a servant and slave of all. And so help us to, to believe that, to know that, to put that into practice. Help us to see Jesus clearly, who is our model, our example, um, who made it possible for us to be free from our inward bent and to love others freely. As God, uh, use the preaching of your word. Um, yeah, I really hope that to, to take root in our hearts. And uh, I pray that you bless our smarter time, that we would further be able to just think upon how we can apply your word in our lives. Thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.